Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, The Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. Welcome, folks. We are here, part four of our Azula deep dive. We have made our way with Azula over the course of her journey from the brief glimpses in season one to her campaign in season two, where she took over the Earth Kingdom and slayed the Avatar. We made our way to the beginning of season three, when she returned victoriously to the Fire Nation, messed with Zuko, had some vulnerable moments at the beach, but now we enter the Azula Endgame, the latter half of book three, and when we see the descent into madness, one of the most interesting parts of Azula's character arc and what truly makes her, in so many ways, a memorable character. I'm Colin, the main host, and tonight I am joined by Kristen. Hello. Hey, guys. And Kevin. Hey, everyone. Kevin, since you were not part of uh, the first uh, kind of three parts, did you have any kind of uh, thoughts or reactions based on kind of what we were discussing or anything that you wanted to add in about Azula's journey up until this point? I think you made a good point about her being so young, having done so much. And what I think is interesting is the game that she plays with Zuko, that he was the one who had killed the Avatar. Because it worked on so many levels for what she was planning ahead with. It it was fantastic. Basically, she absolved herself of any responsibility while also planting the seed in Zuko's head that, what's he going to do? Say he didn't kill the Avatar? Mm. She now has control over him. And can manipulate him in a whole different set of ways than if she said she did it. Mm. But just the the depth of her game plans are incredible. But as I'm sure we'll not to give away our hand too much in this, sometimes when things aren't going her way or when she realizes she doesn't have 110% control of the situation, it gets, uh, gets a little sideways. Absolutely. All right. So... As we enter into the second half of season three, the Day of Black Sun, of course, being this triumphant victory for the Fire Nation, thwarting off this attack, Fire Lord Ozai getting away, Azula biding time, and also the imprisonment of all of these different, basically the war heroes from this invasion. For Avatar, Aang, and the gang, it is a low point. And of course, we see in the Western Air Temple and in the Firebending Masters, they start to gain hope again. Zuko joins the team, Aang learns Firebending, and they connect with the core of where Firebending came from, the dragons themselves. But of course, at the beginning, and kind of before, you know, the, you know, while they're here at the Western Air Temple, and before Azula arrives, Zuko tells Sokka about the Boiling Rock. And we find out that this is where prisoners can be held. The idea that Sokka would be able to rescue his father and do something for him in such a powerful way. It's, I mean, especially after, you know, the way Sokka felt about the invasion. It's it's a huge character moment for him. So Zuko and Sokka embark and they head to the Boiling Rock. And of course, that episode and those two episodes are, of course, amazing and wonderful. But as things seem to be going the right way 
for Sokka and Zuko as they meet up with Suki and are planning a massive breakout. In comes Azula, May, and Ty Lee. So one of the scenes that I want to talk about first in The Boiling Rock is there's a really interesting moment where the warden is interrogating. He is being incredibly violent and he is incredibly intimidating, very loud, asserting his presence. And then Azula comes in. She doesn't say a word. And within moments, she says, he didn't do it. It wasn't him. This moment is really interesting to me. And the reason I wanted to bring it up is because it is a moment where Azula could have jumped in on the fray. But so much of this is her kind of asserting that dominance, especially even over the warden. That whereas he is grandstanding and, you know, having these outbursts, she's calm, cool, and collected, as she always is. And we kind of see that. So I don't know. In terms of, you know, this is the calm before the storm of everything that happens with her. Thoughts on that scene and in terms of Azula coming to the Boiling Rock? Well, I mean, we all know that, you know, Azula does her own form of grandstanding, but it's not out of lack of confidence. You know, we do see that there are like leaders within the Fire Nation who try to make power moves to make the the, like puff up their chests and like a, you know, peacock putting up his feathers. (laughs) You know, it's a display, but it's not actual power. She has confidence in her power and her form of grandstanding isn't in these big grand displays very often. Hers are usually much more careful and calculated. Um, Probably the biggest one that was discussed uh, previously was when Azula fought Zuko without using any firebending. Mm. You know, that's not visually impressive. It's not a big display of power, but it was a very calculated move for her to show how weak she felt he was that she could defeat him without it. And then in her, when she goes to try to get him with the lightning bending, um, which is a huge show of power, not just in that it's lightning bending, but because she knows Zuko can't do it, she's showing him that she possesses power beyond him. You know, hers are always very careful and calculated and not done without purpose, typically, because she is very much that chess master when it comes to her planning and plotting. So, you know, it just it's just a scene that really reaffirms basically how amazing she is. As, as, as cruel and sadistic as she is, she is an amazing character who is, you know, a firebending prodigy, cold, calculating, witty. And, you know, for a 14-year-old, it's just really impressive that she shows up this guy who's probably, you know, a you know 10 or 20-year veteran of the Fire Nation who's probably been working really hard to get where he is. Here's this 14-year-old girl just showing him up. Mm. Kevin? Azula yet again showing that she knows way more about the situation than most people around her. <laughs> it's so true. And what she can do in that situation and how she can push the buttons. Mm, definitely. So, of course, the Boiling Rock episode continues and it leads to this climactic fight on the gondola. And, I mean, what a great just place to be uh, you know to set a fight (laughs) you know you have this amazing it's above the boiling water you know the stakes are so high because Sokka and Zuko and Akoda they can't get out any other way this is their one ticket out of there or else they become prisoners themselves and of course 
I mean, Azula, May, and Ty Lee, they can't let them escape. This is like the like highest dishonor for them to let these prisoners kind of get away in this. So the stakes are incredibly high for both sides. And I mean, it's a great fight. We really get to see an amazing, you know, just just of course, this amazing coordination between Azula and May and Ty Lee. And the fight continues. We see Azula's prowess. But then it reaches the moment where Azula is on the platform back with May and Ty Lee. And May is faced with the decision. She could let Zuko get away or she could keep him there inside with Azula. Azula has this moment where she blows up at May when May is saying that she's not going to let them go. So it it leads to this confrontation. Azula says, I never expected this from you. The thing I don't understand is why. Why would you do it? You know the consequences. This is right after May has cut the line and allowed Zuko and Sokka and the prisoners to escape. Why would you do it? You know the consequences. And May responds, I guess you just don't know people as well as you think you do. You miscalculated. I love Zuko more than I fear you. And then we see a turn in Azula. This is a moment where her anger and her frustration comes out in a way that we have truly never seen before. Yelling, Azula says, no, you miscalculated. You should have feared me more. She readies lightning. But as she is about to do this, Tylee comes in, attacks her, and she blocks her. Azula falls to the ground, paralyzed. Tylee says to May, come on, let's get out of here. And Azula, growling back at them, says, you're both fools. And the guard says, what shall we do with them, princess? Put them somewhere I'll never have to see their faces again. And let them rot. (sighs) So here we are. Only, what, seven episodes after the beach? And Azula has been betrayed by her two closest friends. What was it like for you guys to kind of revisit this scene and think about it now in the context of being adults? Because, again, I remember when I watched it when I was younger, it was, I loved the drama of it and the, you know, the story moment and seeing Azula betrayed in that. I was rooting for May in that moment, but any new insights revisiting this now and any new perspectives? I think that for anybody who watches it, it is one of the most gratifying parts of the show. Because to a certain degree, I think we all see it coming. Like in the very beginning, she essentially holds Ty Lee hostage to join her. So already somebody is there who doesn't necessarily want to be. She gave up her love and her passion out of fear of Azula. So just our understanding of how Azula established her relationship by essentially holding people hostage is really telling of her. And, you know, you have to wonder if Azula can really truly have friendships because this does obviously hurt her. But I think it's more frustrating for her is the lack of control in that situation. She thought she had more control. 
you know, which is what she's all about is being in control of these situations. And not only does she lose control in the sense of her friend's betrayal, but when Tylee, she blocks her and she's literally laying on the ground, unable to respond. It's probably the most vulnerable we've ever seen her in the series. And that moment had to be very terrifying for her because in her mind, she has control of these two very powerful individuals, individuals that can, in a sense, challenge her. And now she's lost control of two individuals that she probably sees as some of her biggest threats, because aside from their own individual abilities, they know Azula so well. And so this is a huge loss for Azula, because even when Zuko or Aang escape her throughout the series, you know, we know that she's patiently playing the long game. But, you know, she knew what her targets were. She knew her objectives in getting Zuko and Aang Um this is completely different. It completely sidetracks from what she was planning on doing. And, you know, knowing Azula, we know that this is kind of the beginning of the end for her because the loss of her closest friends and allies essentially is, especially ones that we've basically seen with her throughout her entire time. Cause she, she recruited them shortly after she was introduced. Um, this is a huge loss. She's lost, you know, essentially everything at this point, aside from, her uh, power as a princess. She's lost her brother who's betrayed her and now her two best friends have betrayed her. Mm. Kevin? Yeah, I think Kristen hit the nail on the head there. It's, I mean, what's crazy is it went from Azula getting the gondola wires cut where she was just like, all right, sweet. I'm now about to take care of my brother. He's out of the way. That's another domino down towards my you know, domination of everything. And in the span of, I mean, on the show and what, a five, ten minutes? Um, it went from her having full control over the situation to all of a sudden her just crimpled on the ground and the two people that were closest to her that so far have helped her, you know, conquer an entire city of Bossing Say. Now they've betrayed her. And what she thought were, you know, in her chess game, if she's, you know, the king or more likely the queen is the most powerful, you know, you know, two of our other most powerful pieces, you know, just suddenly went against her. They're off the board. Now what happens to her? Now, like, now she, A, physically can't move, so now in her head she's just, she actually is not worthless, but powerless, and she has no power over the two people she thought she had full control of and thought she fully knew. And if they're willing to betray her, what else doesn't she know? What, mm. what other pieces on the board doesn't she know what they're capable of doing against her? And at this point, she's made it by fully on fear. And now she's seeing that fear isn't the motivator for them that she thought, assumed it was. So it's a good point because like, the descent here is pretty incredible because all of a sudden what she assumed was full control over the situation and the people under her, neither was correct. So now, what does that mean for her future? Now she can't assume anything. So now all of a sudden, where she was like 110% sure the situation would go the way she wanted it, now she doesn't know. And that seems to be enough to eventually unhinge her, is that it just took that little bit of doubt into her own abilities and her own control of the situation that now every other situation is in doubt, too. Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it really is such a powerful image of Azula on the ground, unable to move. She has always been, as we said, in control of the people around her, of her own body. And 
when all of that falls apart in such a quick moment, it, I mean, like we said, this is the beginning of the end for Azula. And I'm so glad that you brought up that point, Kevin, about this idea that if she couldn't see this betrayal coming from May and Tai Lee, how is she going to trust anyone? And so much of Azula and how she sees the world is that she wants to be able to achieve her goals. And these are all, as you said, pieces on the chessboard to make it happen. And if you think that at any moment your pawns or your knights or your bishops or your rooks could turn in and just be on the opponent's side, what is the first thing that you're going to want to do? Eliminate them all. Get them out of the picture. Because the only person that you can trust is yourself. But if Azula yeah, at is... This point, <laughs> if fear wasn't a mo- big enough motivator to make everything happen the way you want it, well then, well, just screw them all. <laughs> there's, there's one way to be sure everyone will do what you want, and it's if they have no ability to do anything. Absolutely. But if we're using the chess metaphor here, I mean, if Azula is the king, the king is only as good as the pieces around them. It can still move anywhere. It can do, you know, like it can still be a player on the board. But at the same time, it's like if you don't have those other pieces around you, then, you know, there's only so much that you can do before it all comes crashing around you. So the next time that we see her, of course, is now in the finale. And the first episode of the finale, the Phoenix King, we see Ozai basically crowning himself this new kind of supreme leader as the Phoenix King. Azula, frustrated, is riding the palanquin to this coronation. She is frustrated to, you know, the fact that the, they're not getting there fast enough. She she is letting these things that are trivial becoming huge deals. Like she is getting so upset over all of this. And it all culminates to when Ozai is standing there and he tells her, you will not be coming with me for this invasion. You will not be a part of this. And Azula kind of reverts to a very childlike state. You can't do this to me. It's not fair. And Ozai even says, silence yourself. And then he tells her, you're the only one I can trust. You are going to be the new Fire Lord. And suddenly, we get a glimpse, I think, into what this relationship between Ozai and Azula has been all these years in this one scene. If there was any moment that Azula was upset with what her father was saying to her or not allowing her to do, Ozai gives her something that she does want in return. And suddenly, Azula's happy. And that is that is enough for her to kind of move forward with these things. And it's very much, in a way, a very abusive relationship. Because Ozai can kind of decide everything that he wants to do. And Azula is, you know still underfoot of that and I, I don't know what what were 
some of your guys' thoughts on kind of reading that scene. Well, it's kind of funny, I guess, when you think of what Azula's motivation is, is it to ultimately become the final ruler? Or the, you know, the Fire Lord in this case? But, like, I mean, the way her ambition is and her desire for control, it's kind of funny that the really, ultimately, the only person that would ever stop her from getting to the top is Ozai in her eyes. But she needs Ozai to keep lifting her up. But it seems like because she didn't become Fire Lord from her own efforts, it's almost like he's like, okay, you're Fire Lord now. I wonder if that was also something that was um, bothering her, which is she didn't conquer the title or something like that, which is fun. The more I think of it, it's kind of funny trying to figure out how Azula would deal with the final problem, which is Ozai, ultimately. Because if she wants to be the head, the ruler of the world, you know, striking fear into the hearts of all, there's one person she's going to have to get past, ultimately. So thinking about the relationship she has with uh, Ozai is actually a little more interesting when you view it as what was Azula's endgame to all this. Well, especially if she's following a similar trajectory to Ozai. Because obviously, as we know, Ozai conspired to kill his own father. And that was how he became Fire Lord. So, I mean, clearly he's got to have that in the back of his mind as well as to what to expect and seeing how similar he's got to know she's nuts yeah Yeah. (laughs) he's got to know that he you know he has this like crazed person under her under him that's gotten him pretty far i mean helped conquer bossing say i mean that's a pretty big accomplishment and slowly inching him towards being this you know this phoenix king over the whole world but he's also gonna have the same problem at the end which is there's only gonna be one person powerful enough to defeat him which is her if not the Avatar, once the Avatar is, look, could you imagine in like some alternative universe where Aang is out of the picture and then it's an Ozai Azula fight for the for the whole shebang? Because ultimately that's where it would go. So I, I think with part of what you're saying, I definitely agree with. But I think the one thing I do disagree with, however, is that when Ozai sees Azula and this moment where he is letting her be fire lord i don't think that he truly sees or understands how much she is kind of broken at this point because of this betrayal from may and tai lee because now that's a good point yeah he hasn't uh, seen that portion of it yeah because i mean the thing is it's like if you knew that someone was in that much of a they were that unstable would you truly leave them in like in control of this nation while you go off to kind of lead this campaign. I mean, if anything, that would be more concerning. Yeah. Well, and let's backtrack on that point too, though, because think about it. We literally just talked about the boiling rock and how may pointed out Azula's miscalculations and Azula mirrors her father. We see that throughout the series. So who's to say that Ozai isn't making the same miscalculation because we assume that based on Azula and based on his own actions, that he's a pretty, clever and cunning person but they both obviously miss these social cues or they have such strong black and white beliefs and their ability to create fear on people that they literally can't see the the cracks in the foundation of their relationships with other people that lead to the you know the dam falling and the floodgates opening it just it it's a moment where you can see it he doesn't He's he's obviously lacked as a father figure, and he obviously doesn't recognize his own daughter's state in that moment because of that obvious lack of true relationship. He says he trusts her, but 
that's because Azula's been a pretty good at being a blind follower, essentially, of her father. You know, she's never been very strong to question him or anything like that. She does as she's told to the best of her ability. And, you know, he sees that. And I also think in that moment, too, I don't think he recognizes what he sort of did. Because we talk about him kind of giving her the title of Fire Lord to sort of placate her. And I think that while Azula seems content with it for the moment, because in her mind she was building up to this moment of becoming Fire Lord, at the same time he kind of just discards the title. Like it doesn't mean Mm. anything. So he's actually unintentionally creating more problems for her because suddenly being Fire Lord isn't good enough. And I'm not sure if there ever would have been an Azula Ozai showdown because as ambitious as she is, her ambitions always led her to seek his approval. And while it could have eventually left to, led to her trying to destroy him, at the same time, it might have been that, you know, she's never going to do anything that he doesn't approve of. And if that's mm. the case, then how is she ever going to defeat him if his approval is what she ultimately seeks? So her becoming Fire Lord and becoming, um, you know, ruler of the kingdom may not have necessarily been about destroying Ozai so much as proving what an incredible ruler she was to him. Hmm. Interesting. I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I guess not to. I know we have a outline to follow and all this, but thinking about the motivations of Zuko and Azula, it was ultimately to win the favor of their father. Which I mean, what they're fourteen, fifteen years old makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's about the age where you're either seeking the gratification of your parents, or or rebelling, or rebelling. Mm-hmm. Um. Zuko flips at some point. I guess that's a good point. Azula never really had that flip over. She was always just seeking his approval. So, yeah. And now that the fact that she's failing in any aspect of that or that she could fail, because now that she has this betrayal of May and Azula and that her fear isn't as powerful as she thought it was, now all of a sudden that ability to get his approval might be in jeopardy. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the, the huge thing is that Zuko had Iroh. And Azula was always, you know, she was always listening and looking up to Ozai. So one of the points that I want to bring up uh, that uh, Daniel wrote ahead of time and wanted us to kind of uh, communicate here was, he says, pretty clearly this scene is showing where Azula got her view of the world, in which people are little more than tools to be used until they break. Ozai has treated her her that way since birth honing her skills in combat, leadership, and probably manipulation, training her for a very specific purpose. Was it just too much, too soon, for a 14-15 year old girl to handle? I don't know. What do you guys think about that in terms of her getting this role of being the Fire Lord? Is this a case of it being too much too soon? I think that we have to take in one other aspect because as much as we focus on Ozai, we've covered before her relationship with her mother. And I thought about it after our last discussion with the beach. And, you know, we discuss how very often when we see Azula with her mother, interactions usually aren't very positive. But the only interactions we typically saw between Azula and her mother was when Azula was exhibiting traits of her father. And skipping ahead slightly with the books, we know that Ursa had a relationship prior to Ozai and was basically forced into her marriage with Ozai. And Ozai is very much the opposite of her. We see her as being a kind and generous person compared to Ozai's much more 
uh, dark and, and manipulative nature. And so Azula being a daddy's girl and mirroring those things, you know, it must have been hard for Ursa to try to be a good mother to her when all she saw were the traits of her husband that she obviously didn't have a good relationship with. Um, so it, it, you know, when we look at these dynamics, I'm sure Ozai definitely had his own plans and mechanisms in place for how he wanted Azula to thrive and become this, you know, really powerful heir to take his place. Because at the end, the heir was also going to reflect on the parents, you know, mm-hmm. while Ozai is obviously loves hogging the glory. You know, he takes Azula's plan to burn the uh, Earth Kingdom and doesn't invite her, but does it himself. You know, we all know that he's going to be the one remembered for burning the Earth Kingdom. Nobody's going to think, oh, it's because Azula told him to. That's not how history is remembered. Mm. I think Azula recognizes that. So, you know, he's very much a power hog in this case. Um, so Azula, you know, very early on is very much like her father. She couldn't probably know that her mannerisms were what upset her mother. All she sees is her mother not loving her, essentially, and thinking of her as a monster growing up. And, you know, it's not an easy conversation to have. Oh, by the way, my daughter, you know, I was basically forced into this marriage and you exhibit all the traits I hate about your father. It's really hard for me to be a good mother when you are basically a mirror image of the person that, you know, I don't want to be with. it's, It's a very complicated thing that's not you know, we see pieces of it, but you don't really get to put all that together until you really sit down and think about it, the complexity of Azula's life growing up, because it seems straightforward. She's raised by this domineering uh, dictator of a father, and she mirrors that and tries her best to seek his approval. But she was obviously distraught by her the way her mother thought about her. So who knows, maybe Ursa really drove her to be more like her father and her father recognizing her daddy's girl complex really kind of took that and molded it. So who's to say how things might have been different, how Azula might have been different if her relationship with her mother had been better? Um, it's hard to tell at this point. Mm. All great points. Really good. Um, so as as the finale uh, you know proceeds, uh, we get a series of scenes with Azula where we see her really starting to crack um, for a lack of a better term. Um, And we truly see the impact of May and Tylee's betrayal. Um, We first see this when, you know, she is, she calls upon uh, the, I believe the first one was the Daily, right? Yes. We see this first when uh, she calls in the Daily and as they come in, they ask, is there anything wrong, princess? You were minutes late. That is plenty of time for an assassin to come in and kill me. And she banishes them. And what's crazy about this is that Azula against an assassin? I mean, come on. She can hold her own, and I don't think that she would have any problem fending off an assassin. So it really kind of shows how much she is just using this as an excuse to to, to banish them, and how much she is just is paranoid that she thinks that they are not there to to be able to be there to protect her, and that they are their delay is intentional, that they are becoming lackadaisical with like their duties, and. Here we are 
Azula saying that they have the spirit of a firebender. She has such admiration for the Dai Li in the second season. And now, so nonchalantly, she banishes them. Taking away these elite guards who like, really helped her on the day of Black Sun and have helped her secure power in the Earth Kingdom and all of this. And she throws that away. And then we see her... Of course, mentioned that she banishes the the fire nation, the fire, uh, the fire bending, the fire nation royal guard, and we hear this when Lo and Lee came in, and they're telling her, you know, we're growing concerned that you know you are, you know, you're banishing everyone, and maybe we should postpone your coronation. And then Azula asks, "Who said that?" And of course, it's a great Mike and Brian balance of this very serious moment of going into a humorous one where it cuts to the shot of Lo and Lee and they're pointing at each other, <laughs> willing to throw They don't want to be on the bad end of the stick here. <laughs> and of course, Azulid says, so I'm just like, well, you must fight in an Agni Kai. They're like, we're not firebenders. <laughs> she says, while pointing to them, Lo, you're banished. Lee, you can stay. And then they're like, but wait, I'm low. Who's banished? <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, thoughts on these series of scenes of uh, Azula kind of banishing everyone and what that kind of showed about uh, where where we were seeing her character uh, descent here in the endgame. Just watching her mind circle the drain. It's like uh, anyone who, like, I think this is the second time now in this podcast I've brought up the History of Rome podcast. Um, and what is heard about the emperors, you know, the mad ones like Nero who burned down Rome and things like that, which is essentially once you get people a little unhinged, like, but they're in that position of power, what do you do? It's like at this point, like in like Lo and Lee's mind, like Azula is still this authority and all that, and they're still like willing to accept, okay, banishment, okay, fine, okay. Um, but it's interesting because now she's assuming like with these not being able to protect her from assassins, it's just more people that she no longer in her mind thinks she can control. So it's just now everything is almost a confirmation bias, which is okay. This is confirming those people can't be trusted. Okay. These people can't be trusted. So screw them all. Just take them all out. It's like the only person at this point, she thinks she can trust is herself, which is as we know, is pretty ironic because at this point she's the one person that can't trust herself. Because her mind is betraying her very fast. Very, very fast. And now she's making these decisions that she normally would have very much thought out and done for calculated reasons. Now she's just off the cuff banishing people. Exactly. I mean, it's like, you know, from a strategic standpoint, you're getting rid of the firebending royal guard who are these incredible firebenders. You're getting rid of the Dai Li, who are these amazing earthbenders. And you're getting rid of Lo and Li, who are these great tactical advisors and have been with her since the beginning of Azula's arc. We saw her in the beginning of season two, and it is Lo and Li giving her feedback and instruction about her lightning bending. And there is a a reverence to their presence that, you know, she has. And now... She wants to get rid of one of them. Kristen, some of your thoughts? I agree with Kevin. I mean, we're, we're slowly watching this descent. I mean, you know, throughout the series, even 
in moments where we've seen like a softer side of Azula when, when she's trying to manipulate Zuko or she's trying to like be calm in a situation where people are getting a little unhinged, you know, she's, you know, she, she's, it's like when you watch those TV series, how like, you know, somebody might have a weapon, but you're not trying to kill this person. You just want to like knock them out. You'll take like the handle of your, your sword or dagger and like conk them on the side and, and concuss them and stuff. You know, she is a perfect example of a weapon. She's been honed for this, but she, you know, even the dull side of a dagger can still cause damage. And she's really learned how to hone herself, not just as a weapon of destruction, but as a weapon of manipulation and getting the things she needs done without necessarily destroying her resources. And so we've seen all this careful calculations and, and mechanisms that she's had in place and, within the span of minutes it's all crumbling and it's it's fascinating because it just shows how tightly wound she was that when she begins to unwind she can't stop because if you do that if you've ever you know if you have some loose string that's um you know circled up and you cut a piece of the string it doesn't unwind very easily because if it's loosely wound then it doesn't unbound super well but if you take something that is very tightly wound and you cut into it it very quickly unwinds because it's releasing all of that tension suddenly and that's what she's doing is she's been unbound and now she's unraveling quickly because all of this tension through years of careful preparation are unwinding she was the second board child who had the pressure of being a girl, which is not typical of most rulers, even though that was her aim, and she had the pressure of being a prodigy, which means that she always had higher expectations than usual while being the person who's not the heir and a female. So she's driven from a young age to have this control and to be methodical and perfect. We see it in her introduction when she's practicing her lightning bending with Lee and Lowe and her hair falls out of place. Like, we see that and it, you know, to go from who she was in the first real episode we see her in to this is pretty stark. I mean, there's no other word for it. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to The Legend of Portalcast. I just wanted to uh, take this time in the middle break uh, to thank you again for listening uh, for this incredible journey that we've been on discussing Azula um, and how to reach out to us. Uh, You can find us on social media, uh, Legend of Portalcast at Facebook and Instagram, Twitter at PortalcastPod, and of course visiting our website, legendofportalcast.com. Uh, the other thing, too, just want to give you a heads up into what's going to be coming down the pike. Uh, really exciting news. We are interviewing Dave Roman, uh, who worked on some of the Avatar comics uh, way in the beginning, uh, has been involved in the Avatar community for a very long time, and uh, someone who we have interviewed in the past. So it's going to be really exciting to get to talk to him, his perspective on the show uh, now that he's older, and uh, just what kind of plans he has and some of the things he's been working on. Uh, So that'll be coming out next week, and uh, really excited to share it with you guys. Thank you so much again for your continued support, and hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Mm. Absolutely, and I'm glad that you brought up the hair, because again, now it leads us into a truly disturbing scene. And one that really kind of shows this final crack happen for Azula. 
She is sitting there, servants at her side. They are tending to her, preparing her for her coronation. One of the servants holds a bowl of cherries. Azula takes one, bites into it, and we hear the sound of her teeth cracking against a pit. Her eyes widen, and then she takes the pit out of her mouth and holds it between her two fingers. What am I holding? A pit. And what if this pit would happen if I didn't notice that it was inside this cherry? You could have choked. And suddenly, an innocent mistake from one of these servants becomes another moment where Azula thinks that she is being betrayed. She banishes this young woman. And everyone leaves. And Azula is left in this room. The full-length mirror standing before her. She looks at her hair, a disheveled mess. She clutches it and takes a pair of scissors. And she says, meet your doom, hair. And she cuts it. This moment is so po- is so potent. And we've mentioned over the course of this series, uh, Hello Future Me's uh, video that he did on Azula and the psychology of Azula. This was one of my favorite points that he brought up. And it is the fact that at this point in the story, Azula is feeling like she is being betrayed by everyone around her. And now she feels she is being betrayed by her own body. Her hair is no longer under her control and she cannot handle it. And it leads her to cut her hair. And as we mentioned, I mean, this, this symbolism of her hair throughout like the very beginning of her story, one hair out of place when she first lightning bends. As she is there at the crossroads of destiny and Katara brings that blinding water slice across and it cuts part of her hair. When she is attacking at the Western Air Temple and she has to take out her hairpin and her hair flows freely as she has this moment where she is almost falling to her doom and her hair is there and now here she is and she cuts her hair and the look in her eyes it's it's tragic and I think it's why so many people have always just enjoyed Azula as a villain. Because when we get to this point where she is cutting her hair and she is broken down, it's believable. And I think that that is something that is really hard sometimes for anyone writing TV or movies to do is to have a villain or have a character that has this moment where they break down And make it seem believable. And as you were just saying, Kristen, I mean, Azula's been so tightly wound this entire time. And now this unraveling is happening at a pace that she cannot handle. And of course, immediately following this moment where she cuts her hair, we hear and see Ursa in the mirror. You always had such beautiful hair. And Azula has this conversation with her mother in the mirror. 
You always thought that I was a monster. I didn't think you were a monster. I loved you. And Azula throws her brush at the mirror, shattering it into a thousand pieces. So I want to get your guys' thoughts on this scene. And clearly it is one of the most powerful ones in Azula's whole character arc. And any new insights that you guys have now that we've kind of had this well-rounded discussion on Azula and her arc and your experience revisiting it now as an adult. Even in this vision, her fear has no control. I agree. I think that there is a lot of symbolism in this. I mean, she's she's banishing all these people because she doesn't feel like she can control them simply because, you know, after May stated, she had miscalculated Suddenly she feels like her ultimate tool, which was creating fear through all her power and ability, um, is no longer a good tool. And through all of this betrayal, it's not surprising that the person she might feel the most betrayed by is who shows up. Because, you know, it's, it's common for people to feel like mothers owe their children love, owe them a certain amount of attention, owe them no favoritism between siblings. Yet, you know, throughout her childhood... Um, there was an obvious favoritism that's suggested throughout the series and she feels betrayed by her mother not loving her because for her, she's constantly competing. She's competing against Zuko, who is the heir and who is a boy. And she's got to work harder and fight harder to beat that, to be better than him. And while she obviously wins her father's affection, she can't win her mother's affection the same way. Her mother shows a lot of affection towards Zuko, who reflects her a little bit better. And so her betrayal from her mother from the very beginning of not loving her and adoring her the way her father did, you know, is obviously something that stuck with her. And she established early on in the beach how she felt her mother looked at her and her mother contradicting her just kind of confirms that miscalculation. I didn't think you were a monster. I loved you. And to a certain degree, that was probably true. Ursa probably tried to love her daughter the best she could, considering what Azula was like. But in the end, you know, it wasn't the same relationship it was with Zuko, and Azula recognized that. But Azula probably didn't realize that her mom tried to love her in her own way, and it that it's one more miscalculation. It's one more instance of her mind and her entire world betraying her because she had built this carefully crafted world around herself, both in her mind and outside of her mind with the people that she had relationships with. And, you know, Ursa's appearance and statement are just kind of like nails in the coffin at this point of her recognizing that nothing was as it seemed for the most part. It's more complex than how she imagined her relationships with people and how people work. And the loss of that control and the betrayal of the people around her in her mind at least, have all just kind of sent her world crashing down and she's losing her identity. She's lost her identity. And I think when she cuts her hair, that's what we're seeing is by severing her identity, you know, for somebody who held herself in such her, her own high esteem, essentially, um, you can't do a hard reset. You can't just go, okay, this isn't who I am. I'm going to be something, somebody different. She can't just do that. She's shattered her very foundations and she's crumbling. And, you know, the repercussions of that is now it's unstable and she's unstable. 
So, you know, it, it like you said, it's a very logical flow. This was a very believable undoing of Azula. We all knew that she had issues, not just that because she was sadistic, but mentally she had to have issues because people just can't exist like that without having problems. Nobody is so perfect in that sense. There has to be a chink in the armor and a weakness. And it's easy to visualize her vanity, her pride and her strong investment and her power and manipulations being her undoing because the world's not black and white like her and O's, I think it's got so much gray in the middle and it's that gray area. It's the in-between that really kind of undoes her. Mm. Well said. That was incredible. Um, I, I mean, especially the point that you brought up about, you know, her, like what Ursa says to her. And what's crazy is that this is coming from Azula's mind. Somewhere deep seated in Azula's mind, this is something that is there. It is a delusion that, you know, she has crafted in this moment where she is, you know, her mother is saying that she loves her, but Azula is fighting against that. And as she was fighting against her hair, and trying to cut that and feeling that her hair and her body were fighting against her. Now her own mind is fighting against her. And again, that symbolism of her throwing the brush into the mirror and that shattering. It is such a powerful image and such a great call for Mike and Brian to do that. To really capture that scene. And it ends with just Azula breathing heavy overwhelmed by this and of course the next time that we see her is in the climatic finale this battle between her and Zuko she is about to be crowned the new fire lord and Zuko and Katara arrive on Appa well no they didn't arrive on Appa did they or did they not yes they did okay I'm just <laughs> cycling through the episode here. Um, they arrive on Appa and Zuko, he immediately recognizes that something's off. Katara asks, you know, whether or not that they should, you know, he needs help because Azula challenges him to an Agni Kai, the, the showdown that is always meant to be. And Katara is worried at first. But Zuko even says, something's off. I can't explain it, but she's not, she's not there, or not at her best. And it is, and then we see this insane, beautiful, and magnificent fight. I mean, I still, I still remember that night when we watched this, when the finale aired, and I was so blown away by this fight because not only is it an incredibly beautifully choreographed fight with amazing animation, the colors, everything, it is something that is so rich with symbolism and so powerful because it is this clash of these two arcs of these two characters in such a profound way and the music that accompanies it and the fact that we have so much of the sound taken out we only hear parts of the music and then we hear the roar of flames coming in, but we don't hear much else besides that. 
it is this whole battle is existing kind of in this small microcosm here. And it has all come down to this. But now where we had this fight between Zuko and Azula in the beginning of season two, where she was sidestepping him defensively and not really even attacking him, letting him bluster all over the place. Azula is coming at him in full force. There is no more calculation and precision. It is just raw, unleashed power aggressively directed towards Zuko. And one, I definitely want to bring up something that here that Daniel wrote. He says, a magnificent fight on so many different levels. The choreography is magnificent. The effects are beautiful, especially the intermingling of the red and the blue flames and how they interact with each other. However, completely gone is her careful, defensive, manipulative fighting style. In this duel, she is completely on the offensive, with little to no thought given to any semblance of defense. She is trying so desperately to crush Zuko that she has completely forgotten who she is and how she got to where she is. And of course, this fight, as it continues, Zuko calls her out. What? No lightning today? Lightning? I'll show you lightning. So before we get into these final moments where Azula kind of has this confrontation with Katara, I want to get some thoughts from you guys on this fight between her and Zuko and revisiting that. And again, with all the context from everything we've discussed up to this point. I just said the music sets the tone, which is it's just such a dark time. Uh, I mean, in the show, I mean, we, we've already been seeing, you know, Aang was, has Ozai off dealing with that. And now we see this fight and these are now fights to the death. Like these are like, not that all the other fights in the show were, you know, for giggles, but this one is, this is all the marbles. Like, it's all on the table. Azula, everything's out of her brain at this point. So she's throwing everything she has to try and keep whatever it is that she thought she had. Zuko is fighting to save the world. And then now Katara has to fight to save the world and save Zuko. It's just, it fills you with so many emotions because now you don't know. I mean, we're all pretty sure that it's not going to end like Game of Thrones. Uh let you think which is that a main character will be dead or like that the gang won't win but the creators make you think that there's a chance there's a chance none of this goes their way and just hearing it in the with, with it being so quiet it just it kind of gets your goosebumps going definitely Kristen I definitely agree about the music point you know because we know the series is very unique and careful with their music and the sounds and in the same sense, it's it's very carefully omitted in certain ways, too, because, you know, we're all holding our breaths. We knew this was coming. Like, Aang and Ozai was a given, but the Azula-Zuko conference kind of, um, conference, a confrontation kind of <laughs> popped up. And in some ways, I think some of us were more invested in this showdown than we were in Aang and Ozai mm. because we didn't expect it. And we saw the conflicts between them, but when we hit the final season, it really comes to a head because we see the confrontation at the end of season two um, between them and, you know, he flips. So there's some part of you that's like, all right, Zuka made his choice. Let's move on. Like, we're not going to get that ultimate confrontation. 
But then they go in the next season and they flip it around and Zuko finally gets his head on straight. And we're like, all right, it's on again, like Azula and Zuko. Like we, we all knew that this was coming and it's it, it they built up so much anticipation by building up these two characters and their relationship in their past. You know, Aang and Ozai don't really have a relationship other than being on the opposite sides of this war. They don't have a past. They don't have a, an existing relationship. When they meet to fight, that's the first time they see each other and interact with each other. You know, but Zuko and Azula, we get the beauty of the dynamics and the chemistry and their similarities, but more often, of course, their their opposition to each other. And it's it's this thing that you become so invested in. So there's so much in that scene as we're all holding our breath and waiting to see what finally happens between Zuko and Azula, especially as the drama around Azula has been built up throughout the finale. So it, it they crafted it so well, so beautifully. I mean, it, not just in the sense of choreography, but just how they built the drama and anticipation to that moment. It's almost better. Well, you know, in my mind, it is better than the Aang and Ozai confrontation hmm. because there is that really strong investment in it because I think some people didn't know who they wanted to win, mm. to be honest. Mm. Like, obviously, Zuko being the good guy has the obligation to win. But Azula, Azula is this character that you hate to love, but you kind of do in your own secret, like, guilty pleasure kind of way. And so there's almost this sense of, oh, God, I want Azula to be successful. Like, she's worked so hard. She's been kicking butt so bad like it's hard to see somebody who's worked that well and that hard to get where she is and fail mm. so it, it was very intense definitely and absolutely was- i think you made a good point oh sorry to interrupt. i think that was a good point you made kristen which is i think this fight was kind of the more interesting of the two the ang sozin one let's be honest the show is going to end with ang beating sozin that's <laughs> I'm so- oh, sozin ozai jeez you know i get like i read one thing and i say the other um <laughs> He's going to beat Ozai. There's no guarantee in that other fight. That side fight? Who knows? Maybe Azula wins and then Aang has to take her down. Does Zuko make it through the fight? And maybe he doesn't. Maybe he's a tragic hero. It's interesting. Yeah, there's no given in that fight. And like you said, I mean, we all have conflicting things. Maybe at the po- at that point, we're like, you know what? Nah, screw Zuko. <laughs> well, <laughs> he was jerked to Iroh. <laughs> he had this coming. <laughs> well, and that's what makes this kind of final moment in the fight so interesting. Is that... Azula, even though she has broken down, we do still see a glimpse of what she has always been best at, knowing how to pinpoint the weakness of others and turning a situation to her favor. She readies the lightning. She sees Zuko readying himself, but then she sees Katara. She knows that if she tries to shoot this at Katara, that Zuko's going to jump in front of it, that he is going to try to save her. She knows that that is Zuko's weakness, that he will not just let that happen. If she was in his shoes, she would, but she knows that Zuko will not. And so she lets that fly at Katara, and Zuko does just that, and he is wounded. And suddenly, he's out of the fight. And Katara, she is now fending for her life against Azula. And this final showdown between the two of them is is such a great bookend. 
Because, of course, we had this magnificent fight between Zuko and Azula, but then it switches to this... I mean, it's almost like a horror movie in terms of its pacing, because Katara is sneaking around the pillars. She is bringing up waves of water where she thinks that Azula was, but she's gone. Azula is firing these blasts of lightning and fire towards her, and she is just trying to figure out a way to beat this completely crazy firebender who is... I mean, she is not holding back in the slightest. But Katara has that moment where she sees the water. And as Azula comes up, she brings the fingers towards her to pen the lightning. And Katara brings that water up and freezes it. And then Azula is frozen. Katara unfreezes herself, brings these chains, and shackles Azula to the to the gate below. Again, it's echoing that moment where Tai Lin chi blocked Azula. Suddenly, in a situation where she felt like she was in control, she had taken down Zuko in this moment, and now all she needed to do was take down Katara. And then suddenly she finds herself chained unable to break free. And this is where we see that final break. I want to read what Daniel wrote because I think he did a great job kind of breaking this down. He says, then at the end, I believe that she does realize this, saying that she has completely forgotten who she is and how she got where she is, which gives her that final push over the edge to her mental break as she breaks down sobbing after Katara chains her to the grate, the sheer desperation and rage as she's breathing fire, which is a high-level skill in and of itself, and then the crushing sorrow when she realizes that despite all of her skill, all of the sacrifices that she's made, and everything she's done to finally take her place as the head of the Fire Nation, she's completely powerless. And we see her weeping as this fire is breathing out of her mouth, and... It's the last time that we see her in the series. And it's just so beautifully tragic in that moment. So to kind of wrap that up, I want to hear final thoughts on this scene and then what that means over the context of this whole arc of this incredible villain in this series. Trying to rule by fear isn't the answer, kids. Because I think that's part of this story is that it's the idea that love, friendship, all that ends up conquering all. It's not like the main plot, but I think it's one of the themes that's kind of interwoven in there, which is that the gang wants to be together. They they support each other. They love each other. And ultimately, they're going to be the ones that win the day, not the people that are trying to crush everybody else. And Azula is the one of the biggest, I mean, the to this point, the biggest domino to fall until Ozai and watching her in that moment where you just, you, you almost get that tinge of feeling bad because you see her, how desperate she is. And the fact that she's lost, that she's completely powerless. Yeah. yeah that's tough. You know, cause you, cause you know what she is, you know, she's awful, but at the same time, it's a human emotion when you see someone power, you know, suffering or to feel bad for them. So it kind of puts that, just that little bit of conflict in your heart. Hmm. Definitely. And, and I mean, the, the thing I want to add, too, is that, you know, with a lot of other shows, 
you oftentimes can create like a hatred towards a particular villain because they have killed a favorite character or killed all these masses of people. And it's not to say that Azula hasn't, you know, had her fair share of destruction along her path, but, you know, at the same time, even though she has done these horrible things and all of that, it's, again, as you were saying, Kristen, we love to hate her. And it's just like this, there is this someone who has these dreams and ambitions and she has achieved so much. And then to end chained to a great, completely powerless is just so tragic. And degrading. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, that was a beautiful pun. (laughs) But uh, some of your, some of your final thoughts, Kristen. Yeah, I mean, kind of picking, piggybacking off Kevin a bit there, you know, there definitely is a theme of the teamwork versus these people who believe that, you know, they are so powerful that on their own they can achieve all these things. Because it's not Zuko who defeats Azula, it's Zuko and it's Katara. Um, it's not Aang alone who defeats Ozai, because Toph and Sokka are holding back Fire Nation masses that may have been able to assist Ozai and make the job harder for Aang. Like, in the end, if they didn't have, you know, the people supporting them, because it wasn't really, in the end, you know, it wasn't simply just an army versus an army. It was really came down to these individuals. And Ozai and Azula stood alone in their own places, while, you know, the rest of the gang they came and they supported each other, which, you know, makes a difference. And, you know, we have plenty of stories where you have the solo hero, the lone warrior who fights their way to victory. But, you know, we all recognize that it's never just one person. It's always people that are involved in the process, whether it's the story that created the person in Azula's case while we very often give Ozai a lot of credit for her upbringing we have to recognize the part that Ursa played and her constant competing with her brother Mm. you know this created her but in the end she didn't acknowledge these things she just wanted to stand alone and take credit for everything she was and everything she did she didn't acknowledge the things that made her her and she decided to stand alone versus the rest of the gang who obviously felt the exact opposite you know there's that very obvious you know lesson it's the reason why we tell stories Mm. it's very rare to find any kind of cultural story that doesn't have a lesson to it and we see these lessons all the time in all kinds of stories and the one here is very easy to see but the nicest part about the way the story was told is it was so complex and layered even for a kid's show you know it wasn't a straightforward battle it wasn't just a physical battle with azula it was also an emotional and psychological battle and you know it built it up so beautifully and you know as much as we felt relief in having some of the you know story ties being finished and just having our ending and being satisfied with it at the same time, I did feel kind of bad that she, she ultimately lost, at least in the series. You know, there is a lot that happens beyond that, but for the most part, for those of us who originally only were invested in the series, you know, okay, the good guys won. That's cool. But 
you know, I don't care that Ozai gets locked up to rot, but Azula, I, it's like, you don't want her story to end. It's like, she's such mm. a complex character. She's now shattered. She doesn't know who she is essentially anymore. Cause she's lost so much and changed so much in such a brief period that, you know, that there is the potential for a rebuilding or redeeming of a character in a sense, whether she goes and becomes a threat all over again or completely changes her ways and becomes somebody new, you know, there, there's no telling where she could go because she's really kind of breaking herself down to the core, which means that she could rebuild herself in any direction. And it's as, as satisfying as the ending of the series was for the most part, there was really this moment where for me, I, re- I remember originally watching going Azula spinoff, Azula spinoff. Mm. <laughs> like, I would have loved it so much, but I mean, I got Cora. I can't complain, but still, like that was, it was really intense. Yeah, well, and I mean, the thing was is that as we had seen recently, uh, Aaron E has one of the main writers on the show, had said that he wanted, and there was talk of doing a fourth season that would involve an Azula redemption arc. So it makes this end even more tragic. Um, of course, we get to see more of her story in The Search and in Smoke and Shadow. But again, it is just so tragic. And I think a lot of it, too, is because she didn't have someone like Iroh there to help her. And she didn't have friends that would look out for her in the same way that Aang and Katara and Toph and Sokka would. It's not to say that May and Tylee weren't there for her. They were. But at the end of the day, when you're dealing with someone like Azula, there's only so much kind of that emotional abuse and manipulation that you can deal with before you have to kind of just cut those ties. And it's just very interesting. Azula was truly such a a great villain for this show. And... To see her arc play out like this, it was, again, beautifully tragic. And she is truly one of those characters that is so memorable. And again, this is just a kid's show, but I would be hard-pressed to find a lot of other shows that can really tell that kind of a story for a villain in a way that just continues and ends in such a beautiful way. So with that, that wraps up our discussion on Azula. Um, Of course, as we know, her story does continue in the search in Smoke and Shadow, but we have decided that we are going to be holding off on discussion of that until we get to those books specifically. Uh, Those are going to be stuff that we are going to be covering later this year, um, but we are going to wait until we get to those to kind of talk about that full context with Azula. We wanted to focus mainly on Azula in the series itself, because that was the original intent, what was originally crafted for her character, and it has been a wild ride. I just want to thank everyone who has listened along with us for this journey, all of the great feedback and enthusiasm we've heard from fans who have been listening through this. Um, It has been such a delight. As we have said (laughs) over the course of many of these uh, episodes here, for Azula, this is something we've wanted to do for a long time, and it felt really good to be able to do this in four parts. And we apologize that this one ran a little bit longer, but we hope you understand and 
Hope you uh, enjoyed this deep dive into one of all of our favorite characters. Um, so, of course, we want to hear more from you. Uh, if you have thoughts on uh, Azula and her arc, or if there were things that you wish we would have talked about, let us know. Uh, reach out to us on Facebook and Instagram at Legend of Portalcast, on Twitter at Portalcast Pod, and of course, you can find us on our website, legendofportalcast.com, where you can subscribe on iTunes and Spotify or listen to the episodes right there on the website. Um, again, thank you everyone for your support and uh, for listening along with this series. It was such a delight, and uh, we're excited to do more of these deep dives in the future as well. But until next time, let us leave.